Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Governor Gretchen Whitmer unveiled a budget that is turning heads in Lansing and all over the state. Major new investments in education, criminal justice reform, and other social spending. We're going to talk with Zach Gorchow of Gongwer News Service about what the governor proposes and whether the Republican-led legislature will indulge. Then we're going to meet the new historian for the city of Detroit, Jamon Jordan, and talk with him about his focus on the city's rich African-American history. It's all next on Detroit Today. But right now, the news from NPR. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. So here's something we don't often get to say in the state of Michigan. We are flush with cash. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer wants to spend a lot of that cash over the next 12 months. Right now, we have a $7 billion budget surplus here in Michigan. I'm going to say that again. We have a $7 billion budget surplus. And that's thanks to federal pandemic stimulus funding, as well as our booming economy, which is driving up state revenues from sales taxes, income taxes, and a lot of other sources. So the governor wants to make historic investments with that money in everything from public education to roads and infrastructure to criminal justice reform and a lot of other social programs. But the governor doesn't just want to spend that money. She's also asking for some other things like targeted tax cuts, tax cuts for retirees and low-income Michiganders, something she talked about in her State of the State address. Republicans, on the other hand, want more wide-reaching tax relief, and that will set up a pretty interesting dynamic heading into this pretty big election year here in Michigan, where the governor will stand for re-election and much of the legislature, of course, is up as well. Here to talk about what the governor's budget request looks like and the politics of all of it is someone we turn to pretty often to help us make sense of these things. Zach Gorchow is the publisher and executive editor of the Gongwer News Service in Lansing. Zach, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Good morning. So I want to start with something you tweeted on Wednesday. And I want to say something before we even get into this conversation. Uh, If you're listening and you want to know about the details of the governor's budget proposal, if you want to know uh, as much about it as possible, you really do need to go uh, and take a look at what Gongwer was doing, not just at its site uh, on Wednesday, but uh, on social media as well. I I I think it's not and uh, it's not an overstatement at all to say that it was the most comprehensive coverage that I saw. But, but uh, Zach, you tweeted uh, one wow after another while reading through the budget recommendations. Uh, what, were the, what were the biggest wows for you? And, and I'll say, you've been covering state government for a really long time. I've been around a long time. Uh, I, I, I saw all kinds of eyes popping on Wednesday. I don't think any of us had ever quite seen a budget proposal like this one. Uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right, Stephen. Um, so what got me to, to tweet that was, you know, you know, some 20 plus years of tracking state budgets. And usually you, you look at the department by department budgets and it's a 1% increase here, a 3% increase there. If it was a 4% increase, you might be like, oh, that was a good year for that department. And looking at the governor's proposal to see 10%, 20%, 30%, 60% increases, uh, if you look at just the general fund monies, which are state revenues only, if you, fa- you, know, you factor out federal monies, some departments, 80%, 90% increases, I, it, it, your just head is spinning. But it's because of what you said, which is that there is this $7 billion 
windfall, mm-hmm. and uh, the governor is determined to uh, invest that money in a variety of ways and not just leave it on the balance sheet uh, going forward. So it is extraordinary. Um, I said to our staff, uh, hey, everybody saddle up as I was looking through this because, you know, a lot of there's a number of departments that usually you look at them and, you know, you could summarize what happened in two sentences. And I said, there aren't going to be any departments like that. Every department's got (laughs) something huge in it. So it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. So I I want to talk uh, sort of generally about the process uh, for this and the, the response, I guess, that you might anticipate from the legislature, where, of course, Republicans are in charge of, of both chambers. Um, uh, the, the idea of spending this money in this way. Now, lots of people have been talking about being careful with this kind of windfall, uh, because if you build it into the recurring parts of the budget, then, of course, in out years, you're going to have to go and find find that money elsewhere. And, and you are not going to find this kind of money uh, again, likely anytime, anytime soon. So so I, I want to have you forecast just a bit what the what the push and pull will be between her and the legislature over this. Does this budget proposal avoid some of those pitfalls that people have been talking about building uh, you know new spending permanently into the budget uh, and even if it does is that likely the pushback that you'll get from uh, republicans who of course have have their own ideas and have uh, have a lot of things that they want to get done this year as well so most of these large increases are you know, not built into the base of the budget. They're designated as, quote-unquote, one time, meaning, uh, for example, the idea that the state is going to build a new psychiatric hospital. It's a $325 million item. That's a big item, but you only have to spend that once. It's not an ongoing recurring item. Or the governor creating a $1 billion fund for school infrastructure. You put that billion dollars in once, theoretically it doesn't go on. Um, so the, the governor and her staff feel confident that this is a budget that, while it does push an enormous amount of money out the door, is not going to create expectations into future years that this is going to continue. Now, the counter to that is, um, you know, if you look at, for example, areas like higher education, K-12 schools, revenue sharing to local governments, community colleges – which all would see, you know, really substantial increases for relative to what they usually would get, that once you do that once, it is hard to then get that money back somehow. So, for example, the universities would get effectively a 10% increase under this budget proposal, but half of that is considered one time. You know, a, a cynic or a skeptic would say, yeah, good luck, uh, you know, in the following year, trying to reclaim, you know, some of that 5% you, you gave away. That's just not going to, you know, that's not going to happen. You, you know, mm-hmm. you're, they're going to be expecting that to continue. So that that's one piece of it. I think for the Republicans, um, you know, there will be, of course, uh, you know, as they you always say, the, the governor proposes, the legislature disposes. And as the governor herself would say, this is a statement of her values, and it's, a, it's all negotiating point. Um, the, they know that the Republicans are not going to agree uh, to this budget, um, but they're hoping they'll be able to find somewhere uh, in the middle. And certain, you know, you, we already heard from the Republicans, this is a lot of money to be pushing out the door. That they're pro- Republicans will probably want to leave some of it on the balance sheet. They'll probably want to put more into tax cuts. They'll want to put more into the budget stabilization fund. Uh, they'll want to put money into paying down debt. But there's so much money available. It's one of those situations where it's hard to imagine they won't be able to make everyone happy somehow, and especially because they showed last year they could do just that. Um, the, the challenge, of course, is that it is an election year, and uh, you know there's going to be you know some heartburn um, about handing the governor a number of election year victories. Um, you know, that being said, it's the budget. They, they've got to get it done. Uh, and it, again, as I said, it's, it's hard to imagine they won't be able to find somewhere in the middle to land on all this.
Mm-hmm. I'm talking with uh, Zach Gorchow. He's publisher and executive editor of the Gangwa News Service. Uh, in Lansing, we're talking about Governor Gretchen Whitmer's election year budget proposal, which she made this week to the legislature. Uh, give us a call. Let us know what you think of this $74 billion budget proposal. Do you think it's smart for the state to spend so much of the money that we have on things like public, public education, social programs, roads, lots of things? Almost everything in the budget seems to be getting a boost of some kind. Uh, do you think it would be wiser maybe to save some of that money or use it to pay down debt uh, to other things that uh, that could be done with that kind of windfall? What questions do you have about what the governor is requesting in this budget? And what do you think uh, the Republican response is likely to be to these ideas? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the W. WDET Facebook page, put comments there, uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Zach, I want to talk specifically uh, about public education, which I think is kind of the the centerpiece, perhaps, of of, of these increases, not just K-12, but also higher ed. Uh, let's start with uh, the, the, the increase to... The, the, the foundation allowance to, to school districts, a pretty big increase uh, and and something that people have been talking about for a long time. School districts have been begging for uh, this kind of thing. The governor says it's 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 totally possible now. Yeah, a 5% increase. This is the basic per student amount for operations in the state school districts. Every district is going to get $435 more per student. You know, we've had up until the last couple of years, we've had year after year of sub, you know, barely inflationary increases uh, for school districts. Of course, inflation is a little higher this year. Uh, nonetheless, uh, a 5% uh, increase is, is quite a bit more than what school districts are accustomed to having seen for a very, very long time. Um, so it, it, it's going to um, allow school districts to try to, you know, do some things with teacher salaries. Um, you know, one of the challenges the school districts have had with all this windfall of federal money that's come in is, that, is what to do with it exactly because they can't go out and hire a bunch of people with it. The money is one time. It'll be gone, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. So you can't build in long-term expenses. But this is the kind of thing. You know, you do build long-term expenses on, um, and it's challenging right now because, you know, teachers are um, burned out uh, with the pandemic, uh, leaving in the middle of the school year. I know it's, you know, my seventh grader, her math teacher up and left uh, a few months into the school year for a different district. It's it's a challenging time, and so, you, you know, they need to do some things to try to stabilize the workforce. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to social media, put comments there. Uh, Zach, I, uh, before we get to the phones, which are starting to fill up, um, I, I want to talk about higher ed as well. We, we have been disinvesting in higher ed for a really long time uh, in, in Michigan. Everybody has been talking about that, including the business community, which is really frustrated that it is not able to – um, to attract people to Michigan um, and to keep people in Michigan with, you know, the, the, the promise of uh, a, a robust higher education uh, system, that they get a big, they get a b- big bump in this proposal as well. Yeah, it's a 10% year-over-year increase. As I mentioned earlier, 5% of that is considered one time. So there's no guarantee that half of that would continue into following years. Nonetheless, uh, you know, there hasn't been an increase like this in about since the late 90s. We had the, the big run up with the stock market um, for higher ed. It's really been a 20 year story of uh, either very minimal increases or in some case, you know, bad years, pretty significant cuts uh, to uh, the public universities and what they get from the state. Uh, and so I'm, you know, with the law, along with this is the usual language that universities have to hold down their tuition increases to qualify for the increase. Um, and, you know, universities have in some ways really, you know, they're, they're in some trouble right now because uh, 
you look at especially you know MSU, U of M, and and Wayne State are generally you know doing okay. Uh, but you look at the some of the other universities because the high school population in state continues to decline. Mm-hmm. Um, the enrollment booms of the 2000s are really gone, and so there there are some concerns uh, about uh, you know finances going forward for many of our public universities in the state. And so this is really the first time in a long time that the state of Michigan is looking to potentially really step up its contribution to them in a significant way. Yeah, yeah. I want to read a couple of social media comments. Emmy on Twitter says, please thank the Democrats because no Republicans in Congress voted for us to have this money. And it's our Michigan Republicans who have been sitting on the stimulus money for way too long. Uh, She would like to see money for water infrastructure uh, in all communities. Uh, Jeff on Twitter says, could some of that money be used to restore the pensions for the city of Detroit workers who lost out as a result of the bankruptcy? Uh, the city went through. It's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting question, uh, Zach. I do want to talk a little about infrastructure too. Uh, th- that's a big part of of the investment here. Emmy asks about water infrastructure, but there are lots of other parts of uh, of our physical uh, world that that will get uh, get more money here. Yes. Uh, so one, there there, there is going to be a big water infrastructure bill. Uh, the, the Senate Republicans. Have already moved uh, a very substantial package on that. Uh, it's really just a matter of uh, the governor, the House, and the Senate finalizing what they want that to look like. But there's a very, you know, a, you know, a billions dollar package coming on water infrastructure. Uh, something I think will be very well received by listeners uh, in metropolitan Detroit. The governor is proposing a really substantial investment in the uh, freeway pump stations. How many times have we seen you know, major interstates in Metro Detroit flooded out um, with these big rain events in recent years uh, because the pumping systems to pump that water out are old and are failing, and so you know the freeway fills with water? Um, I think everyone would be – I don't think there's a single person who wouldn't want to see those uh, in mint condition and pumping the water out to keep our freeways clear, so there's a pretty big investment for that. Some of the federal infrastructure money that I think one of your callers was uh, referencing uh, would be deployed here. Um, so the governor is you know, able, I believe, in terms of the Michigan Department of Transportation budget, it's not just roads, but it is mostly roads. I believe it's a $1 billion increase year over year, which is a very, very substantial increase in investment. Um, and then I believe you also add on that there's the, the bonding money that the governor did for state uh, roads. Those would be the interstates, the M routes, the U.S. routes. Um, that is still coming online, and there's a whole lot of that that'll be coming into play this year as well. So it, it, if depending on how this goes, we could be seeing an awful lot of orange barrels uh, in the, the next couple of years. <laughs> our, our favorite things here in, uh, in yeah. Michigan. <laughs> uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Alyssa in Livonia. Alyssa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. This is such a great conversation, and your guest is fabulous as far as educating everybody. Um, I just, you know, the things I was talking about to your um, screener was that, you know, I, I think it needs, I hope that this isn't just give all these departments a big lump sum right now and, you know, one thing and it's done. It would be nice if it was like a long-term investment and, you know, keeping the roads good, not just fixing them once, but keeping them, you know, financed. And, you know, I'm a real strong proponent. I'm a social worker for mental health and especially for children um, and elderly. So, you know, just different areas that might be lacking right now. Of course, education is always a need. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, you know, and the cities have lost a lot of funding and colleges. So I don't know. I just think it should be really smartly done. And it sounds like it's a good proposal. Um, I just would like it on a longer term and maybe even invest some of it. So we have it in a, you know, just in case. We're so, out. Yeah, that's a, uh, that was going to be my question to you, Alyssa. Would yeah. you take some of that money and, and do some different things with it than rather than, than spend it? Oh, you know, I, I think it's important. I mean, it is important to me to have a savings. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, it makes sense for our government to, because you never know what could happen down the road, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And um, it's just nice to have that, you know, just-in-case money. Yeah. Uh, Alyssa, appreciate the call and, and the mm-hmm. comments. Uh, Zach, that, that is one of the tensions here, I guess, with, with uh, the governor's plans is uh, she's spending an awful lot of this money. People might think she should uh, invest it. And then, you know, the other the other dimension of, of Alyssa's comments is how much of this will be uh, you know, will will be kind of transformative and not one time one time spending. Well, on the the last question, uh, the last the state's budget staff told us that the what they believe to be the ongoing increase in revenues, meaning like this is what we can look for year, from year to year, is about six hundred to seven hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. So that's you know that's a lot of money. Um, but it, relative to what the overall run-up in revenues is, it's a relatively small amount. So that's why mo- so much of this is being classified as one time in nature, you know, whether that's the governor wanting to put $500 million more into this new economic incentive package that was used to uh, recruit the new GM electric vehicle plant. Uh, you know, that's a one-time thing. Um, you know, I mentioned the one billion for school infrastructure, another one time thing. So, um, you know, that's why they're not saying, hey, we're raising state employee salaries by 30 percent, because, you know, that would be the kind of thing you couldn't just do one time, uh, mm-hmm. for example. So um, in terms of the savings aspect of it, there is a small contra- you know, deposit the governor proposes to the state's budget stabilization or rainy day fund. This is the fund that's used when we go into an economic downturn and revenues fall. Um, that would bring the fund to $1.5 billion uh, in absolute dollars. That would be a record you know, just for inflation. It was a little higher uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I would imagine the Republicans will, would, will likely want to put more into that, and I'm sure the governor recognizes that's going to be part of it. Uh, and, you know, the state hasn't been able to get back to a triple a bond rating since i believe the end of the angler administration once the 2001 recession hit it was lost Uh, but that would be a nice feather in the state's cap uh, if it could get that triple a bond rating again which uh, a healthy rainy day fund is a big factor in yeah yeah okay uh zach gorchow it's always great to have you here on uh, Detroit today, and again, uh, wonderful work this week. Really digging into and explaining uh, this this whole budget proposal. I thought again that uh, that there was not another news organization that did a better job. So uh, kudos for that. And again, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for those kind words, Stephen, and, and thanks for having me. Okay, uh, we're gonna come back in a minute, and we're gonna talk about. For the first time, the city of Detroit having an official historian who specializes in black history. I'm going to talk with my friend Jamon Jordan next about his new job. And we'll bust some myths about African-American history in Michigan and elsewhere. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're now officially into February, which is each year Black History Month. And while we always talk about Black history and Black futures on this show, not just in the month of February, we wanted to take this opportunity to talk with someone who is also constantly thinking about African-American history, especially here in the city of Detroit. A few months ago, Jamon Jordan was named the city's first official historian, and his focus in that role, as it has been as a historian for a really long time, is on black and other marginalized histories in the area. Jamon Jordan, welcome back to Detroit Today. 
Uh, thank you for having me today, Steve. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have you here. So first of all, congratulations. Uh, I thought that was uh, it was a surprising announcement, but I was like, it makes total sense uh, that that you would be uh, placed in a in an official role uh, as the city's historian, given your really uh, long time attention uh, to history, to local history, and of course to to African American history and uh, the, the the vigilance that you've shown in trying to make sure that people understand that African American history here or nationally or anywhere is not uh, some sort of separate story, some sort of separate right. tale, that it is part of American history. So that means it's part of Detroit history and it's part right. of uh, Michigan history. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. Um, and of course, you know, we're in this time where, you know, history is a battlefield. And so it, the reality is that that's been the case for a long time, but it is of course highlighted right now with people storming um, school boards and asking for certain books to be taken out of their, their child's classes. It's just really right now a minefield in dealing with history, particularly history that deals with the uncomfortable part of America, which is the issue of racial inequality in that long history. And so um, by the city appointing me as the uh, official historian, the city is making a, a conscious um, decision to um, take a stand on this issue because everyone knows what I do. So if you <laughs> if you appoint me to this position, then you're basically saying that we're taking a position that this history of racial inequality, civil rights, the Underground Railroad, slavery is going to be front and center in talking about Detroit's history. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk just a little about this job, um, which I, I have to say I don't I don't really know um what that job looks like day to day i know that before you were doing this job of course you were leading tours of the city with a black history lens uh, and you've been doing that for a really long time but but what other kinds of things um come with this with this title and this work so of course i still do that so i still uh -huh. um, do that uh still lead tours and lectures dealing with detroit's african-american history and detroit's history in general but I also have to conduct research on behalf of uh, the city um, using the city records and archives, as well as archival institutions in the area like Burton or the Hackley Collection or the Walter P. Ruther, Detroit Historical Society, and of course the archives of the Charles H. Wright Museum, Detroit Free Press, Detroit News. So I do a lot of research as well. I do writing. So uh, I write uh, on behalf of the city about Detroit's history and um, of course, you may have seen some of my um, columns that show up in the Detroit Free Press, but but they'll be showing up in other publications as well, including the Michigan Chronicle. I teach. I do a lot of teaching about Detroit's history. So there are people who want to know Detroit's history, people who come to the city of Detroit, people who live in the city of Detroit and want to know this history. And so I am sent to do that job, talking about Detroit's history to city officials, departments, as well as visitors and other groups. Um, about the historic people, places, and events in Detroit's history. And then I do some public presentations, some of which are recorded. And I do a monthly lecture about a particular topic in Detroit's history. And it's shown on um, the city of Detroit's um, cable station. And so um, you get to see me there. And then there'll probably be me in some podcasts and some other short films um, dealing with Detroit's history. And then I work with the different historic preservation groups um, I'm just a seat at the table. I'm not running anything, but I'm a seat at the <laughs> table when we're talking about uh, historic preservation, um, including the city's historic district committee um, and other groups who are involved in Detroit's um, historic preservation. Um, and I work with a lot of community organizations um, so that um, as they're working on grants to preserve historic sites or create monuments or create historic markers. I worked to help make that as smooth as possible and do it and lend whatever expertise I have in that area. So yeah. those are the kinds of things I do. And of course I want to promote um, the tourism about Detroit's history to the city of Detroit as well. So all of these things are things that I do as the city historian. Yeah. So, so I wonder if you can give us, you know, an assessment or a grade, I guess, uh, as you kind of begin this work, 
with the city on on how well we are preserving a uh, but but also uh, making sure that people know about this this really rich history of uh, of African Americans here, you know, along the along the straits, uh, it, it is a very long history. Of course, uh, it's a very right. complicated history in 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 many right. ways. And I always kind of fear that people don't really know uh, a lot of it, and that the city hasn't done a great job uh, of of making sure that they do know. Uh, but but I wonder right. what that looks like from your chair. Yeah, and and I would say probably we're. We're we're mediocre in both right now, and so I'm, I want to change that. I would say we we make it a C in both areas in yeah. preserving and preserving these historic places, um, the sites where great people and events occurred that really helped to shape Detroit to be what it is today. Mm-hmm. We have not done as great a job historically um, to do that, and then we haven't done a great job in telling our story, um, and so. Um, I am hoping to make sure that, that we, we, we overcome those problems in telling our story. When, it, when Detroit, Detroit's history is more than Henry Ford and the auto industry, and Detroit's African-American history is more than Motown. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that is really kind of what people who have a basic understanding of Detroit's history, they, have, they know about Motown and they know about the auto industry, particularly Henry Ford. But there's so much more history in the city of Detroit beyond all of that. And so it is my job to tell the stories that we already know, but also to make sure that the stories that haven't been told get told and that they become part of the historical um, land land um, um, scape of, of, the, of the city of Detroit. That when we think about Detroit, we don't just think about cars and, and um, the Temptations and the Supremes. Mm-hmm. We think of, we know how to think about those, but we also ought to think about this much larger history jazz, gospel, techno music, all of these other musics that are a major part of Detroit's art history. And also we ought to talk about the other industries that came to the city of Detroit, including cigar making and and building um, 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 iron stoves and and all other kinds of industries that have come through the city of Detroit. So this is um, my plan of trying to make sure that we make this, this happen. And that we do a much better job of telling our whole story. Yeah, I, I also know that one of the things that uh, that you've really f- focused on is the 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 history of slavery here yes. in Detroit. And whenever I say that, I, I I always feel like there are people who who kind of scratch their head and say, "Well, wait a minute, what's slavery? This was not a Southern state," um, and that's true. But uh, slavery was not confined to the American South. There were there were there were slaves, uh, people who were enslaved, in in all kinds of places, including right, right here uh, uh, in Detroit. And and you've really been working to try to to try to tell that story in a much broader way. Yes, yes, um, yeah. So one of the things, if people do have like a, a higher level of Detroit, of knowing Detroit's history they know that Detroit was a part of the Underground Railroad. So kind of if they taking that next step past Henry Ford and Motown, they know that Detroit was important in the Underground Railroad. But what most people, even people who have a pretty good knowledge about Detroit's history, they don't know that Detroit had slavery and that um, slavery is another seminal part of Detroit's history, particularly in if we're talking about the French creating Fort Pontchartrain du Détroit in the 1700s. And that's how we get to a town and then later a city called Detroit. Mm -hmm. Then you can't leave out what the French and then later the British were doing in that town and in that fort. They were enslaving both indigenous people, the Native Americans who were already here, and Africans. They were bringing Africans who were enslaved into the city of Detroit. So at that foundational part of what is going to be the city of Detroit, slavery is at the core or at the base of that um, system and that community that is created by the French and then later the British. Yeah. And, you know, one of the the really cool things about history and one of the interesting things about history is the way it all kind of intertwines and overlaps. So the history of slavery here in Detroit is actually a story about 
much of our other history. And there right. are people who, whose names we do know uh, right. for reasons that uh, are laudatory who right. were also involved in the slave trade or in slave ownership. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Lewis Cass is the one that, that always jumps <laughs> yeah. out first. Uh, and right, I know, right. I know of your, I know of your <laughs> efforts to, to force the, the, the very proud Cass tech alumni to come <laughs> to reckon with, <laughs> with his right. legacy. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it all, it all blends together. You can't tell yes. any of these stories uh, separately, they all they all relate to one another. That's exactly right. So if we're talking about our early um, Detroit's early religious institutions, St. Anne's Day de Trois being the first religious um, um, building built by the French in the mm -hmm. city of Detroit inside of the fort. Well, at, at that site was the first notation of an of a black person living in the city of Detroit their burial notation of an unknown Negress who was enslaved by members of the Campaw family. Oh, the Campaw family, of course, we know Joseph Campaw becomes a, one of the most wealthiest Frenchmen in the city of Detroit, a leader in so many areas, one of the major donors and a board member of um, the University of Michigania. Of course, the University of Michigania is the University of Michigan. And yeah. of course, we have streets named after him. And so all of this is, is connected. Our first elected mayor is John, is the nephew of Joseph Campbell. His name is John Williams. But of course, because there's so many other John Williams, he adds a middle initial, which is John R. Williams. Yeah. And John R. Williams is also a slave owner. And both of them are the founders, at least with their funding, their funding founds the longest still existing business in the city of Detroit, the Detroit, uh, the Democratic Free Press and Michigan Intelligentsia, which of course today we know it simply as the Detroit Free Press. And so, yes, we're surrounded by the history that, have, that has come all the way from the 1700s and even before, but we're surrounded by the history, but we're not made aware of that history. And so we know about the University of Michigan. We know there's a such thing called the Detroit Free Press. We know there's a street named Joseph Campbell and another one named John R. We know there's a school named Cass and Street in a neighborhood, Cass Corridor. We know all these things, but we know very little about how that history is is tied to so much other things than what we're told they're tied to. So you might know that John R. was a mayor, but you might not know he was a slave owner. You may know that Joseph Campbell was a wealthy Frenchman, but you may not know that he also was an enslaver of Native Americans and Africans. Um, you may know that Louis Cass was a territorial governor and then the Secretary of War for um, Andrew um, Jackson, but you may not know that he illegally was enslaving a black woman named, uh, named Sally, and he's selling her, he will sell her in 1818 to members of the McComb family. And the McCombs are the largest slave owners in Michigan's history. So all of this history is connected, it's connected to us today, but it is important for us to understand where we came from so that we have a better understanding of the landscape of what we're working with today. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Jamon Jordan, who was recently named the city of Detroit's first official historian. Uh, we're talking about the importance of not just Detroit history, but the importance of African-Americans in that history, uh, history that often gets overlooked or suppressed or hidden. Uh, Jamon is really focused on making sure that we understand how uh, African-Americans, how much African-Americans are a part of Detroit history. Um, we'd love to hear from you during this conversation as well. How much do you consider black history or black futures when you think about the city of Detroit? Uh, what do you think of the things that we talk about during Black History Month, both here in Detroit and Michigan and around uh, the country? Uh, also, do you have questions for the city of Detroit's first official historian, uh, anything that you've maybe wanted to understand better about Detroit and its history, or in particular, uh, African-American history here. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Uh, let's start with uh, John on the east side. John, what's on your mind? So I uh, worked on the uh, No Sudden uh, Move movie back in 2020, and I was mm -hmm. really fascinated by the detail that uh, I was a prop maker building sets, and uh, it, they really went all out in the detail, and then I later found out that uh, 
that you were uh, consulting on that. And I just would like to know about your experience and how you think it turned out of telling the story of 1950s Detroit. Yeah, that that was it's a very cool movie. And uh, I I also saw that Jaman was was working on it, and I was insanely jealous of, of the access that he had to people like Don Cheadle and uh, Benicio Del Toro. Uh, but, but Jamon, talk about working on that movie. Yeah, I talk to Don Cheadle every day. Um, <laughs> See, now you're going to rub it in. <laughs> but, um, but yes, it was a great experience. Uh, it started with the screenwriter, Ed Solomon. I had met him um, a year and a half before the, any filming began. And I was his uh, consultant for the writing of the film prior to any filming. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, I knew going in that this is a fictional story. This is not right. a true story. And of course, I'm a historian, so I like everything to be exactly facts. But I knew that this is a fiction. He let me know this is fictional, but we want it to, to be realistic. We want it to be realistic fiction. We don't want something that never could have happened in um, 1950s Detroit to show up, you know, um, and so we wanted we wanted it to to have the feel of historical Detroit, and so I helped to make that happen. Um, I talked about um, the history of African Americans, um, both in the um, above ground and the underworld in the city of Detroit in the 1950s, and some of their relationships with other groups, other organized criminal groups, and the the the, the the neighborhoods, and so um, the one of the characters, or one of the the the, the um, reasons why um, things are happening the way they're happening in the film is because of the feelings of the black community about Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, and and so it shows up in the film, um, and um, that is what was going on, and all of those references to real people and places and the Gotham hotel showing up in the, in the film. Yes. I, I am a major part of why that happened. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's I, the kind I, of, uh, I and mean, it's, it's the kind of role that, that historians play, you know, I mean, the Hollywood is telling, as you point out, a lot of times, uh, fictional stories, but, but they want to root those things in, in, in truth in as much as they can. And it's, it's historians, who figured that out for them? Um, yeah, no, I saw I saw that you were doing that, and then and as I say, I was I was pretty jealous about all of that. <laughs> it is and it's a great film too. Uh, John, I, I really appreciate the call and uh, and the questions. Let's go next to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind today? I am thinking about Piety Hill. I have uh, gone down Woodward and seen these magnificent churches that are falling into disrepair. If they could be rehabbed, it would bring jobs for um, artisans with skills that might be dying out, and they would make tremendous tourist attractions, and that's my thought. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's a really interesting, again, like little-known aspect oh. of Detroit history. Jamon, talk a little about uh, Piety Hill and, and what Bernadette is, uh, is wanting to, to see restored. Yes, yeah, so those important um, uh, religious buildings that are in the Piety Hill neighborhood in the city of Detroit, they're, they're historic churches, they're historic architectural gyms, uh, and there are historic preservation groups that are doing what they can um, in a in a world of competing um, places that all require lots of funds to, to preserve. So there are people trying to preserve what they can. People's Community Church, which was First Baptist Church is there. St. John's CME Church is there um, in that neighborhood. And so you, and of course, Temple Bethel, which is now um, Transformation um, Community Church is, is there. And there are groups, Temple Bethel is working with the black church that's there now to help restore that church. They have a community center inside of Temple Bethel, um, St. Matthew's Episcopal Church, St. Matthew's and St. Joseph's uh, Episcopal Church is there and they're still a, 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 a functioning and living congregation and they have that historic building there. And so there are people who are, and there are institutions that are trying to work on this, but she is correct. If we could 
um, really muscle up the, the funding and the people to preserve some of those really gorgeous and architectural uh, masterpiece pieces of buildings. If we could do that, that would be a, 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 a jobs um, program. Mm -hmm. And it would also be a historical um, 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 endeavor to, to really preserve the uh, uh, important part of Detroit's history mm -hmm. um, in, the, in, the, in the midtown, um, um, North End, Piety Hill, Virginia Park neighborhood, um, as you're going down Woodward between um, Grand Boulevard and Claremont. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you know, it, it's one of those places that, again, gets kind of lost in the discussion mm -hmm. of of Detroit and neighborhoods and, and, and history. So I'm glad, Bernadette, that you called and, and reminded us of that. Uh, let's go to Anne in Detroit. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And I'm thrilled to be able to connect with uh, Jaman. Um, I grew up on Grozeal, and the church on Grozeal um, actually has doors that were donated by Lizette Dennison Firth. And she um, was a slave of the McCombs that they freed, and um, she gave her money for that. And, you know, the church is wonderful because of its age and its history and the whole island. And, I mean, just so many things are connected, and we always think of Macomb as only being, you know, Macomb County. But um, <laughs> there are so many other aspects in that, and... Uh, Jaman's tours are just so wonderful. Sorry, I hate to keep yeah. repeating that, but I've learned so much. I, you know, so, Anne, I didn't know about uh, this church on, on Gross Eel, so I'm glad you called and, and talked about that. Jaman, do you want to fill us in on, on uh, th those details? And then, again, M Macomb is a name that's so familiar here, and, and yes. it's the name of, you know, one of the three major counties in southeast Michigan. I don't know that a lot of people realize that of course, that's that's a family, and it has uh, yeah. really dark connections to uh, to racial inequality. So the McCombs were among the wealthiest Detroiters, probably the wealthiest Michiganders in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. And William McComb will end up being um, the largest slave owner in Michigan's history. His brother Alexander moves to to New York and becomes the third largest slave owner in New York City's history. But William will own outright, it will be his personal property, the island that he named Big Island. But of course, in French, that's Gros Ile, but we call right. it Gros Ile today. And he owned probably with about 40 people in his lifetime, or at least in his, his life in the city of Detroit, in and around the city of Detroit. And 26 people he still owned at his death. Um, he owned the Denison family, and he sold them. He didn't free them. He sold them to the Tuckers um, and another British family in the city of Detroit. Now, I understand that Detroit and Michigan are part of the United States at this point. And so the Northwest Ordinance outlaws slavery in Michigan, but that only applies to Americans. It does not apply to the British and French people who are already here, who are still slave owners. And so the McCombs sell, them, sell the Denison family to the Tuckers, the two parents and the four children, this two parents, Peter and Hannah are the parents, and then Lisette, Scipio, James, and Peter Jr. are the children. And they're sold to the Tuckers. The Tuckers eventually free the parents, but do not free the children. They pass the children down to their own children. Judge Augustus Woodward hears the case when they sue for their freedom. So there's a lawsuit. So, of course, many of us know about um, Dred Scott case in 1857, but there's the Denison versus Tucker case in 1807 in the city of Detroit. And Judge Augustus Woodward hears this case, and he doesn't free any of the children. He does say that the youngest one, Peter Jr., can go free once he turns 25, but the other three will be enslaved for life. They escape to Canada. So now you have Detroit's slavery history connecting with Detroit's Underground Railroad history. Yes. So these yes. two histories are connected, and they escape to Canada. Years later, they return, and Lisette becomes wealthy. She goes from slavery to wealth. She becomes the first black woman to buy and purchase land in what is now Oakland County in Michigan. She buys it as an investment. She leaves a portion of her wealth to found a church. So she, she doesn't just pay for the doors. Of course, the doors have her name on it. 
uh, at St. James Episcopal Church in Gross Hill. So that 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 church does have her name on the doors, but she paid for the church to be built. So she yeah. left a portion wow. of her wealth to build. It's the oldest church still existing in Gross Hill. And um, it is important for people to know that history because you have this Gross Hill, which it doesn't have many African-Americans, but the oldest church there was founded by an African-American woman who had been enslaved and escaped to get free. Yeah. Oh, I love that story. I mean, and again, it just like it weaves through so much of the other history here uh in in uh in southeast michigan and again it's all interconnected folks uh, that you can't tell one story without understanding uh many of the others again and appreciate the, the the call and the question uh let's quickly go to alberta alberta tinsley Talabi here in detroit hey that's how are correct you? and i know i know <laughs> i have to be quick so let me that's just great. say that good morning and it's so good to be here with two of my favorite black men <laughs> Jamal and Stephen, let me say that the choice of you, Jamal, was an excellent one by the mayor and the council. I have been privileged to go on many of your bus tours, and I never leave wanting. It's so fulfilling. I feel like it's going to be a fantabulous weekend because I started <laughs> off with the two of you. Thank you both. And if you, I know we don't have a lot of time, but please give the AME Church a shout out. Yeah. No, oh, sure. Gosh, uh, that's a thank great thing. Jamon, we've only got about 30 seconds, but yeah, that, that's a great idea. Go ahead. Yeah. The Beth, Bethel AME is the, uh, uh, the second oldest black church in the city of Detroit. It played a role on the Underground Railroad and a prominent role in the civil rights movement and the Great Migration. Uh, it is the parent, it is the, the, the mother church of all of the other AME churches in and around the city of Detroit. Ebenezer AME, St. Paul AME, St. Matthew's AME which is where Rosa Parks attended when she lived mm -hmm. here in the city of Detroit. And so all of those come out of Bethel AME, the oldest Methodist, black Methodist church in the city of Detroit. Yeah. Okay, Jamon Jordan, it's always such a delight to talk with you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. And again, congrats on the new gig. Thank you, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when we're going to recap the Super Bowl with Detroit News Sports columnist John Neal. We'll also discuss the promise and limits of cryptocurrencies. How much do you know about crypto? This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday. <laughs>